Welcome to A History of Financial Markets, Season 3, Episode 2. We're continuing our journey going through the roaring 20s and the bull market there. This episode is going to be a fun one. We're going to hit the big traders, investors, and the age of the sucker, which is a great section here. We're going to next hit investment trusts and the holding company, which sounds boring, but trust me, it's very, very exciting as well. And we're going to hit the top stocks. Bubble stocks potentially are also the big winners of the 1920s. So first off, let's hit these investors, traders. Um, Okay. First fact we need to have here is in 1923, the Transluc company invented the quote movie ticker, which was a large screen that could rapidly show changing stock prices. This might not seem, I don't know, it might seem inconsequential, but the ticker is said to have caused the stock market to turn into a game for some people and that many people would get entranced by it. Now, these people aren't in the age of the smartphones, so I don't think they're as, uh, that, you know, their stimulation of whatever information coming at them is a lot less than we have today. So this change from having everything basically, and I guess it's still analog, but you just see stuff in the newspaper the next day, or you call up someone and see what the price is trading at, and you have to ask someone what they'll buy or sell something at. This sort of thing where that, I mean, they still have these in a lot of the buildings, I think, although they're kind of coming out of fashion. The big ticker that will go along, that was a game changer from getting information um, about stock prices. And I feel like you could speculate, like that, that would drive a lot of speculation. Yeah. Scarcely though, anyone in the 1920s I mean, outside of the rare investment professional like Ben Graham, the, what do they call him? The godfather of value investing, even knew what a PE ratio was at the time. So these are all just stock price chasers. It sounds like, and maybe this is just from our reading, but it sounds like the general uh, or the average investor of the day at that point was far more speculative uh, than sort of modern day investors. And maybe that's access, the fact that we have greater access to financial information. But do you feel like, the investor today is more fundamental oriented than the the general investment community then? A hundred percent. Today, people are focused, a lot of people focus on fundamentals. Yeah, there's some people that are throwing shots in the dark out there, but a lot of people focus on fundamentals. A lot of people are focused on quantitative stuff. You can even, you know, technical analysis, I think was fairly popular then, but now it's, it's probably more prevalent today. Momentum, all, all that stuff. People, I, I, the people, you know, people are the same, but it's not that anyone was like, everyone's generally smarter today. We just have better access to information, better access to historically what works. Like, you know, don't buy something way more than, you know, don't buy something at, I don't know, a huge price compared to what its fundamentals in the business, its business fundamentals are. So yeah, at this time, a lot of people are just watching stock prices go up and a lot of people can get caught up in that when a stock price is going up, people think, okay, I got to buy now, all that stuff. But getting some more facts about it the amount of Americans that were actually investing. So of the total American population of 120 million, only 1.5 million to 3 million were estimated to be invested at all in the stock market. For reference today, that number is at 53%. Quote, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, a tiny fraction of the general public was actually invested, uh, but the 
action or the uh, what happened in the market can impact even the common person. Oh, sure. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it, uh, it, it's a bit like, I don't know, there's a bit of a wealth effect that can happen. Um, I mean, it's less tied than today because now so many people have 401ks, IRAs, index funds, all that stuff, but it still can have that impact. But there's less people with direct, a uh, way, way less people with direct ownership in the stock market. And that's because a lot of people this time, I don't know, they're, they're still getting electricity out to everyone. If you're in the West, I mean, <laughs> come on, you're not, there's no way you can even know what the stock market, you might not even know what the stock market is. It's, it's, yeah. it's incredibly hard to buy stuff. So here's a quote about business executives. So they, quote, they, referencing big traders and executives, and these are business executives of public companies, were in an excellent position to take advantage of insider trading, which was a common vice of the 1920s and not illegal. So people could do, I don't want to say whatever they want, but pretty darn close to whatever they want. So stock pools were actually a very popular activity that would eventually be outlawed by the New Deal and uh, it could have been Glass-Steagall, whatever the stuff around the New Deal during the Great Depression. And this is when a group of people would manipulate stock prices to their advantage. They would hire agents or reporters to talk up the stock. So it's I, shocking I, that this wasn't outlawed. I know. During. And it's because it was still a new thing in the United States. And there was a lot of people that were kind of coming into this. It was a small, like the investment community and the finance community was a, it was a small community. It didn't feel as influential. Yeah. Like it's, it's like a whole, it was a super niche thing. And in the twenties, it really turned into a mainstream thing. So people and these pumpers love to buy newspaper articles to pump their stock. One publicity man spent over $200,000 on articles pumping his stock. And that is equivalent to about $3.2 million in today's dollars. And by 1929, like I mentioned, over 100 stocks were being openly rigged by market operators. Again, stock pools is one uh, famous way to do that. Charlie Mitchell took National City Bank, uh, and he's one of these people. Sorry, this is a new section. I should have divided there. So this is another person that is very, very important. Charlie Mitchell, he runs National City Bank. He made it the first consumer-facing investment bank. And this was a very unique strategy because it, they tried to take advantage of rising incomes in the roaring 20s. Pretty smart idea. And Mitchell was very important to the increase in speculative stock market activity. He mass-marketed securities to individuals to try and drum up business, basically you know, trying to pitch people to buy stocks. And his salesman had strict quotes that he was ruthless about, which I think- Quotes or quotas? Quotas, excuse me. Yes. Thank you. Quotas. So basically you have to have this certain amount of volume coming in of people buying stuff, right. which to me, this seems like without spoiling what happened, we know what happens at the end of this stuff. This seems like a classic, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Does that feel like what Mitchell was doing here as a huge influence on, on speculation? Yeah, it's exactly what what they, uh, what it sounds like. And I'm so what the salesman basically just had to, uh, get as many people invested into stocks as possible. That was sort of the effort. Yeah, because they get a take rate on, you know, commission, whatever, right. commission, not a take rate, a commission maybe. Um, and they wanted people investing and they wanted to do it at National City Bank. So hmm. I here's a, 
here's some facts from National City Bank because they're they're pretty important here. So during the 1920s, the company origina- originated $10.7 billion in bonds or 21% of the nation's bonds during this time. So they grew and became one of the dominant banks. And by 1929, the National City Bank had $2.2 billion in assets and $22.8 million in net profits compared to just $1 million in 1922. So huge, huge growth from them. And, and the guy, uh, Mitchell, sorry, what's his first name? Charlie Mitchell, and very, very important. We'll hit him on future episodes as well and how he influenced uh, the crash, kind of how he would throw stuff out to the media, all that good stuff. But another person we need to talk about here, who I think we've mentioned before, maybe not, but who is the biggest trader of the day, and that is Jesse Livermore, who was considered, quote, the invisible genie and was said to be the best trader of the decade. Livermore actually got kicked out of the bucket shops in Boston because he was too good and then made his way to New York with $2,500 at the age of 21. $2,500 is a pretty sizable amount back then. By 1923, Livermore had a great reputation after defeating a bear operation against Piggly Wiggly shares. (laughs) Piggly Wiggly is a funny name, uh, but that is a grocery store that was started in 1919. That was the first one uh, to complete with complete self-service. So basically how a store works today. Originally, they used to have to have people shop kind of for you or like it would be behind a counter and they'd bring it up to you. So they revolutionized in that regard. And the founder, Clarence Saunders, grew it to over 1,000 stores by 1922. So growing rapidly. But however, a bear raid started on his stock, which angered him a ton. So he hired Jesse Livermore to engineer a corner So Livermore took the stock from $40 a share to $75 a share in a few months. And this is not a typo, gave Saunders 99% ownership of the shares outstanding. Then, and this is absolutely cruel, Saunders demanded all short sellers buy back the stock they had loaned and the price rocketed to $124 a share. Um, I said he was also maniacally laughing like a villain in a movie in the background, but that's not, that was just me making that up. Um, The exchange though, and this kind of comes back to some stuff that's been happening in modern times with GameStop, whatever, all all that, all that um, meme stock stuff. I forget what other companies are associated with that. Robinhood. Robinhood. Yeah. It comes back to that type of dynamic um, where the exchange was pretty rational and they stopped trading in the stock permanently and then gave short sellers five extra days to fulfill orders because of this manipulation. Saunders eventually, though, went bankrupt and lost everything because he bought all the stock on margin. Jesse Livermore was buying it, but again, he was buying it for Saunders. Bought all on margin. He went bankrupt and lost everything. I have a question, and we might have already answered it with Robin here. What would Clarence Saunders be doing today? That's a wonderful question. I want to think about... Tech founder, maybe? um, I'd be saying potentially NFTs. Yeah. Because I was reading that headline the other day of the person that bought an NFT for 2.7 million and sold it for like 9,000. Feels like that was a bit of a Clarence Saunders situation here. I think he would be manipulating crypto, those whatever non big ones. The tiny crypto coins. The tiny, yeah. yeah. I think he would be doing that because that is basically what is, I mean, the, the stuff we're describing with stock pools, corners, whatever, that I feel like that's happening in the crypto world from yeah. what we hear on the stories. It looks, um, it sounds like a, sort of almost a modern day Jordan Belfort. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of those throughout history. Um, you mean a clat, not a modern day, uh, 
whatever well, historical maybe oh, yeah. modern day as well but yeah yeah uh all right let's move on to some other people but first let's talk some more broad facts to kind of give context for people so in 1927 near the tail end of the bull market the financial salesmen again people like charlie mitchell are you, you know trying to get going at national city bank they pivoted from bonds and preferred stock to selling common stocks because bonds had actually always dominated but the late 20s saw the transition to everyone falling in love with common stocks and again this is very very important because it impacted the crash and when everyone was on margin and all that stuff two other people we have to talk about first bill durant remember his name because he is going to be important during the crash he's the co-founder of general motors i will say he is definitely the obviously not the exact same person he's definitely the elon musk of the time he found all these companies he was very very energetic um trying to do all these things and i don't think this is the same as musk but he would bill durant was a highly speculative trader like a stock trader during the 20s in 1927 for example he bought 284 million dollars worth of stock and sold 270 million dollars worth so a very very active trader and sometimes in his own stock which is kind of kind of wild i think and the next person is mike meehan he was one of the most blatant and criminal examples of the time so in 1928, March 1928, near the end of the bull market, he organized a stock pool for Radio Corporation, which was one of the big bubble stocks of the day. It drove the price from $90 a share to $107 a share before dumping on the public. But the worst part of this is that the wife of the company CEO was in on the pool, along with Walter Chrysler, who of Chrysler, the company, and many, many other executives that I don't written down, haven't written down here. So the key here, and I think you don't need to, we don't need to go through every single one of these examples because there's a ton of them, is that business executives were in on the pumping and dumping. It's kind of insane. And prior to 1928, the exchange had never had 4 million shares traded a day. But in January 1929, the exchange averaged 4.3 million shares a day. So averaged 4.3 million shares a day. So there is so much volume coming in and without any regulation or rules it is allowing these people to basically if you have a lot of uh capital you can manipulate things so is that is that maybe the greatest sign of the bubble when it feels like everyone else around you is getting rich I, i'm assuming that a lot of the volume here since there was uh elevated volume a lot of people were making money is that kind of the the ultimate sign of the bubble everyone's uh, getting rich you're not yeah it's hard but i think it may have to be like the mentality of people where it's not just because a lot of people get rich in this type of thing over i don't know like over a long enough time period but it seems like there's also got to be some sort of emotional mentality around it it's hard to describe but you know it when you feel it or read about it 90s tech bubble um recently with some of the crypto stuff the meme stock stuff um some of the innovation and high growth stuff recently. Uh, I mean, housing in the 2000s, other periods of Ross history that we're trying, or American history. It's hard to describe the connection between those, but there's some sort of feeling you get when someone says in 2005, no, just like- uh, It's a sure thing. It's a sure, yeah, That's it's a sure thing. Yeah. I'm, what do they say? What is the, the stripper saying, the big short? No, I have five houses and a condo. Like, you know, you kind of like, Oh, or no, like I can always refinance, like uh, that type of stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely, you could have that same feeling 
during this time period. All right, next section is the investment trust and the holding company. This one, it's more market structure here, but I think it's pretty interesting. So here's a quote. I did not write the person's name down, but just this from a magazine or something like that. Quote, a second favorite device was the holding company. Holding companies would take over many small operating companies and use their dividends to pay off their own bondholders who had financed the takeovers in the first place. This permitted an infinite chain of acquisitions. So lever buyout type stuff, um, kind of, it's not the same thing, but basically lever roll up, I guess. People were really, really taking credit and trying to buy up as much as they could with loans. Um, The biggest holding company was the Allegheny Corporation. It was started in 1929 for the railroad and real estate empire of the Cleveland Van Swearingen brothers. Who Tell again, you what. They have a great name. Great name. Yeah. Van Swearingen. Just, uh, you know, it sounds like they're trouble. Maybe that's from the Seinfeld episode. <laughs> that, the Van, that's the Van Buren boys, but uh, <laughs> the similar type name where it's, it's funny. Anything with like Van. Sw- yeah. It's, it's a great name. The two were worth over $100 million on the eve of the crash and owned a 700 acre Swiss chalet. 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 I don't know how to say that word farm outside of Cleveland. And JP Morgan became their financier in 1926 and organized all their debt-laden railroad and real estate takeovers. Again, like I was saying, they're the biggest holding company doing that strategy. So the brothers would use each new purchase as collateral for the next. Their holding companies took control in an endless hall of mirrors. And by 1929, they controlled trackage equal to the length of all Britain railroads. So again, this is an example of the largest one but this is what's happening to a lot of people. So the Allegheny Corporation was organized again in 1929 by J.P. Morgan to be the crowning achievement of the brothers. The issue for the stock was the hottest stock in town in 1929, but four years later, it would collapse. And for reference here, why am I talking about these holding companies so much? Because of the 573 actively traded corporations in America, only 86 or pure operating companies, which feels wildly a hodgepodge of holding companies and acquisitions. I would never have guessed it would would be that low. No. And it's not nearly that low low. today. Are you sure? Yeah. I mean, there's some holding companies, but it's not 80%. I'm I'm just picturing maybe not holding companies, but I'm picturing all the like what percentage of the market or what percentage of securities listed are pure operating companies. There's so many ETFs. Oh, okay. Sure, 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 sure. That's the, I mean, I guess in that regard, yes, yes. Maybe this was sort of those are not to get a diversified. uh, It's almost like a way to get a, a fund of multiple companies. Well, this is, well, you're teasing the next section and that's investment trusts, which were, the ETFs and mutual funds of today. So I think there's two differences there between the holding companies and the investment trusts. So that again, the investment trusts, those are the mutual funds or ETFs, similar type thing, invented in 1868 to quote, give the investor of moderate means the same advantages as the large capitalists in diminishing the risk by spreading the investment over a number of stocks. It's been the same tale <laughs> for the last 150 years. Like It's crazy how all these new things get invented and they're basically doing the same thing. Investors who, okay, but in the 1920s, they were doing things maybe a bit more aggressively. So here's a typical way a dollar would flow. So an investor who they would buy stock 
in a levered investment trust. So just investment trusts that were buying their own stocks. They were on, buying on stocks or on credit. Debt. That investor would be buying shares in an investment trust on margin. Um, and they, so the investment trust would buy, say, shares of a stock. And that stock was part of a business who is also highly levered. All right, so that owns got, shares so in got, other leveraged publicly traded companies. So it's leverage, 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 leverage. Four levels that made things. <laughs> I mean, as you can tell, a house of cards. And so it's, uh, and this kind of loops back to the Fed not saying that they wanted to not have, I guess, not care about uh, market speculation. It's a little hard not to when you've got, and also care about debt uh, when you've got, when they're basically interlaid. Yeah, I think. You know, we can say that the Fed may have should have acted a little sooner because, as we'll see, it, uh, the Great Depression. I don't know. Uh, part of the crash may have caused the Great Depression, but in 1927, for reference here, investment trusts sold people 400 million dollars worth of, say, shares or whatever you wanted to find in 1928 that are going to 790 million dollars. It might seem small today, given you know the billions and billions of stuff that's out there, but inflation adjusted. That's a pretty sizable amount, especially nearly, when there's nearly only a one. double of inflows in a single year. Yeah, exactly. So they were highly influential and they're highly influential on the leverage, especially. All right. To wrap up episode two, let's talk about top stocks of the 1920s. Here's a quote. The stocks that went up the most were in industries where the economic fundamentals indicated there was a cause for large amounts of optimism. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar to every Every growth, I don't want to call it bubble, but basically every growth tailwind market, you know what I mean? Yeah. This included airplanes, chemicals, department stores, steel, utilities, electrical equipment, oil, paper, and radio. That's the high-tech stuff of the day, which people might laugh about, but they all got premium prices. There was also a major fad for foreign Latin American bonds. Small-time investors bought them up from the big institutions. However, the debts were extremely junky and got packaged into securities. <laughs> again, sounds, sounds right. familiar again. to every other period. The downfall of them was a big reason from the Glass-Steagall Act, which we'll explore next season. And J.P. Morgan actually partnered with the government to create an American radio monopoly to battle Britain in the emerging technology. This is one of the, uh, the most important communication tool of the time. GE actually bought out interest in American Marconi, which then became Radio Corporation of America, and it turned into perhaps the biggest bubble of the decade, going from $1.50 a share in 1921 to $549 a share in 1929. All right, then the next one we have is General Electric, which was the titan, as in the name implies, electricity. At the beginning of the bull market, it was trading for $112 a share and skyrocketed like five or six X during the period is a little larger than, you know, Radio Corporation. So it wasn't going to be a huge bubble stock, but it, along with Radio Corporation, had some of the heaviest volumes of the era. So I feel like General Motors, or not, sorry, General Electric, excuse me, was, I, I don't know, like the internet, the top internet stocks, like the fangs kind of. Yeah. I was going to say, what industries do you think are the quote unquote world changing technologies of today that maybe are going to be a big deal in the long run, but 
the capital that's flowed to them now is drastically overestimating their impact in the short run? Oh, that's a good question, but a very hard question. <sighs> Don't name any company. Yeah, names. I mean, electric vehicles definitely is one. That's probably that's the first easy. one that that's comes to easy, mind. That's an easy one that comes to mind. It's just so easy to see. Uh, yeah, it's definitely electric vehicles. I think maybe would have said software as a service company is, but yeah. there's been a bit of a washout there that maybe it's, yeah, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, semiconductors have gone through a tiny bit, some points. Yeah. Some I would say, yeah. EVs, maybe self-driving is probably Cars. further away than the money implies. But I mean, going back, the internet could be the internet bubble can be very it, it, it's very similar to say like radio plus electricity kind of like connecting people to better technology that makes their lives easier to communicate with people the communication i think uh if you had a sector called communication services i think it's kind of cool to look back at like how radio which is a giant you know change in how people communicate with each other turn into a bubble similar to how internet stuff did I don't know. All right, let's move on to the next one. General Motors in 1921 it traded at $9.63, peaked at $111 in 1929, but by 1929 it was selling 1.9 million automobiles a year. So, I mean, it was dominant during this time. Coca-Cola for, for reference. What are uh let's use an auto Today, Toyota, Toyota's is, like 10 million. Tesla's smaller. It's at one or something like that. But Toyota's at yeah. like 10, I think it's eight, 8 million. I, I can okay. look that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a big, that's a huge oh, yeah. amount of I mean, automobiles. Autos during this time period, it wasn't that demand was saturated and kind of the same each year. It was a huge secular tailwind as almost everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people were one, graduating to the middle class at the time and earning, say, like, $5,000 a year, $10,000 a year if they're wealthier and they're able to afford cars for the first time. So it was a huge secular, I don't know, huge secular tailwind. Same with radios. There's barely any radios out of the market. And 10 years later, there's like 7 million, something like that. The last stock I have here is Coca-Cola. So it started the bull market at $19 a share. It would end the bull market at $140 a share. And it had a market cap of $10 million in 1921. But we'll do $5 million in earnings in 1922. We talked about it before, but that sort of early 1920s Coca-Cola seemed like one of those buy and never sell stocks that could have made people, you know, families wealthy if they kept it for a hundred years. I wonder back. if they ever dropped back below their $19 a share price yeah. throughout the Great Depression. That would be interesting. Well, maybe we'll have to check it out in, in season four. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, give us a review on Apple or uh, Spotify or wherever you listen. Next episode, we're talking about the Florida land bubble. That's right. You read the book too, right? I so did. We'll two. Yeah, it should be a fun one. Very, very exciting tale uh, with exciting characters. That's going to do it for this episode of History of Financial Markets. We'll see you next time.